You are listening to the Horse Radio Network, part of the Equine Network family. Please enjoy this week's episode brought to you by ADM Forage First Patriot Feeds. At ADM Animal Nutrition, our mission is doing what's right for the horse, and that starts with quality feed. The ADM Forage First Patriot Feeds are premium feed blends formulated for horses at every stage of life. Our Forage First philosophy means starting with the highest quality forage available and then adding the right Patriot product. Each bag of Patriot Feed includes gross strong vitamins and minerals, as well as ingredients to support gut function and integrity. Feed Forage First. Feed Patriot to your best friend. For more information, visit admequine.com. In this week's episode, we look back at some of our favorite podcast episodes that we've done throughout the years and pull some of our favorite clips from them from some of the top performance horse trainers in the country to talk a little bit more about performance horses, what it takes to be at the top of your game, and what it's like to show really great mares. I hope you enjoy this week's episode. Our first clip comes from when we had a chance to sit down with Arabian and reigning horse trainer, Crystal McNutt. Well, it's, I always tell people a good horse is a good horse. You know, I mean, I, I can appreciate, you know, a great dressage horse, great hunter jumper, a great, you know, all that stuff, whatever it is you see a great horse is a great horse. And I think that's the, the key to most people. And with a breed is just highlighting the best part of what you're doing, you know? And I think that, you know, Arabians get, pigeonholed into they're just the pretty horse to look at and that's that's what they're I I get it I've seen them (laughs) you know I mean they're beautiful but I don't that's not really what um that's they're they're not all about that you know there's there's a bunch of those but they're not all about that am I wrong or can Arabians be kind of tricky ones with their minds and how you have to work with them because they might be one to hold the grudge or you know be a little bit more sensitive. Yeah, I, you know, it's hard because our we have set the reining up in in the Arabians where we're four and five year olds. Uh, ours are futurity, not three year olds. One, it's they just mature a little later. They're not as big a horse. Um, two, mentally they mature a little slower, and and you're putting a lot of heat and you're teaching them tricks or you know maneuvers, and and that's um, that takes a lot. That they have to have a lot of. I just. I don't think an Arab, I think Arabs are very, very smart horses. And I think that sometimes they are smarter than physically able at a point. And then that all catches up as they get mature and, and all that stuff. But, um, they, they are smart. I will, I will. Um, and, and they're kind of emotional, you know, but a good emotion if you just take it for what it is. And, you know, I've, I've had great success with them. I, have had some of my best friends or my half Arabs I've messed with because they're just really cool horses. They're, they're into you kind of horses and, and not to say the quarter horses aren't, I just haven't had as much experience with those. And I have a quarter horse right now that I love and just what it is, but, um, they are smart. Um, they, they, yeah, I, I mean, they're really, just a little bit slower maturing than uh, what, what I could say with the reigning horses, you know, what a two-year-old quarter horse does and what a two-year-old Arab does is like two completely different books. You know I mean? They're just not the same horse. Now, as they get older, they can get close, but it, they're just not as strong. That, that is the bottom line with the half Arab. They're just not as strong. So you have to be, you know, you have to do other, they, you have to be more conscientious about other things, you know, um, 
taking your time in different places, but they're smart. I mean, like teaching an Arab to lead change is like one day most of the time. And you're like, okay, okay, we're on to something else, you know, but, but they're just, they're, they, they retain a lot of information and they are very bright horses. And um, some people would say they would maybe be a little bit uh, quick minded. I don't, I don't think that, I think that's how you um, address them. Some could be, but I, I think that's, you could make any horse a little quick minded. So. Yeah, I was going to say, I, I've definitely had quick-minded quarter horses. I mean, it's not, you know, exclusive to one breed, but um, I actually, I, I didn't realize that the fraternities were the four and five-year-olds for the Arabs, but I, I kind of love that because I've I've been in this industry a long time and it it's, takes a lot on a three-year-old to be ready for those big shows. And there's, those horses that are, are winning the big shows at three are phenomenal athletes, but I think there are a lot of horses that could use that extra year to mature and just learn. Well, there's, and I think there's a lot, there's a lot of a, a mental game with a trainer preparing three-year-olds. And I've never, this is the first year that I've really actually tried to do a three-year-old um, before I thought I was trying to do one. <laughs> it was, it wasn't quite what I thought. Um, but the mental game of those horses is a complete different, the ones that are really mentally can take it if they physically can do it, you, you have a horse that can do it. The ones that falter, you know what, you're smart to listen to them and say, you know what, I don't think it's ready, you know, but also the money, the, the, the money in that and the whole deal is a whole different thing. But my thought is, you know, there's only a few people that are winning it. So take your best one and do the best job you can with it. So, um, I get the three-year-old game, but like I said, you know, I, I have prepared that before and been completely terrible this year. I have one, I have three actually. And, um, it, it's a, it's been a different, um, different process than I've ever done before, because I mean, not only are they doing all the reining, I mean, you're one handed in the bridle and, you know, I mean, it's a, it's just a completely, I was like, my, wow, we got a lot to do in a very short amount of time here. So I would say that is the one nice thing with the Arabs. We have a lot longer to, um, put them in, you know, we ride them in the snap until they're five. They, they, we don't show them in the bridle until they're in the open and stuff. So it, it's just a little bit of a different, um, so that, that has been good for me doing the three-year-old thing this year is just making me have to execute a little bit quicker um, and and be a little bit more um, confident that I've done my job. I think sometimes with the Arabs, I can go, oh, I can I can wait or I can go back to that, you know, because I, I have I have a lot of time. Um, so that's that's probably the biggest difference I've had is me kind of, you know, me having to actually step up this year and go, okay, you've got to get going. You're you're going to fall behind. So. So with the three-year-olds that you're working with now, are you planning on taking them to the NRHA fraternity or, or what was your, what was your game plan with them? Yep. We are, we are going to go, <laughs> we're going to go. Uh, we are, uh, we're all entered up. Um, yeah, we'll see. We'll see how it goes, but no, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. You know, it's, it's, it's a different adventure for me. Um, it's something I've, I've wanted to do. I have, I have three really nice ones. Um, it's, it's the hardest thing I think is because of the Arabs, I've, I have been able to win some money, some NRHA money. So I'm actually a level three rider. Uh, so that's probably the hardest thing is I had to come in with some pretty good stock or you might as well not go being a three, you know, it's, and not to say that the other levels aren't tough, but, um, that, that's the, that is the down, that's the only downside that I've had with the Arabs doing the NRHA is because I have been successful. Um, I've won some money. So I, I sit at that level three. I didn't, I didn't even think about that. Yeah, that would be, um, 
yeah, it, it definitely changes the the game plan when you you can't rely on the level one and the two. And like you said, the level one and the two, those the horses that are winning that are just as talented as the level four horses. But it is kind of nice. And the trainers, you know, because I mean, you've got some million dollar riders that are level two riders, which is crazy. But you know, you get that extra level, it sure makes things feel a lot easier. <laughs> or at and, least, and or at least mentally, you're like, okay, I got three chances, not two, you know, or whatever. And um, so that's been a little bit of a um, mind thing for me, but it's, but it's really good because I, I've really reached out and gotten a lot of help this year and trying to prepare. And, and I think that, um, the help that I've gotten has helped me, um, mentally be better. And that's helping me with my Arabs too. And, and preparing like for the nationals, we have the nationals in a month and, and same thing, you know, not only am I preparing for the rain maturity, I have the nationals before that. And same as people that are doing the world show. So I think it's just balancing and, and, um, you know, not treating, my Arabs, like they're three-year-old futurity horses not, you know, you just, you just have to be careful what you get on. And I think that's the biggest thing with me with my Arabs is, you know, you get off one, you get on another, they're not the same horse. You ride them independently and, and they're good horses for it. So. Well, and that kind of leads me into a question of how is the Arabian reigning different than the NRHA reigning? And what, what are the major differences? I mean, you kind of touched on the three and four-year-old differences but overall for somebody maybe who doesn't know or wants to get involved in the Arab reigning you know we have the same stuff we have the the amateur we have a rookie we have the uh intermediate the limited all that stuff um they have novice horse which is basically you know hasn't won so many blue ribbons that kind of thing um you know there we have really tried to model ourselves after the NRHA um same scoring system, same, um, rules, uh, all that stuff. We just are also run under USEF. So we have that supersedes the NRHA for us, but as far as the reigning, you know, and, um, like at the nationals, we have NRHA judges. So, I mean, we're, we are treated the same. And so I give those guys that come and judge us a lot of credit because they don't just penalize because we're on Arabs, you know, though they, they judge that horse. And I think it's, I think the one thing that we have done is we've, we've done a good job bringing the Arabs that, you know, judge them for what they are. Don't penalize them because they're an Arab. They, they are, might look a little different, but wow, it can actually do reigning maneuvers. And, and that's, that's been my whole thing. The whole, like I said, is to come represent the breed well, um, and make people go, wow, I, that's an Arabian. Wow. You know, and just like talking to you guys, you know, just cause you don't see it. And, and that's very understandable. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I get what people think of an Arab. So yeah. what advice would you give somebody who wants to get involved with the Arabians and maybe they're not used to that breed? You know, I think, it, I think whatever you're going to ride, if it's the Arabians, the paints, the quarters, ride, ride what you want to ride. You know, I mean, I think the thing is like going to a horse trainer, if you were going to say, I want to ride raining, they're probably not going to say, Oh, well, let's get a half Arab. That's just not, you know, unless you came to me <laughs> and then that's, or other Arabian trainers, you know, cause that's what we, what we do. Um, you know, I think it just depends. Like if you have an Arabian and you want to see if it could do the working Western, find, find a trainer, you know, there's, there are tons of trainers out there. You can find them on Facebook and all sorts of places, you know, Arabian working Western trainers, whatever. And, you know, if it's something close by that you want to send your horse somewhere where you can keep an eye on, you know, what it's doing, if it's progressing, if it's this or that, um, or maybe have a trainer come evaluate it and see, you know, see what it is. And you never know, um, somebody might like a half Arab. You, you just don't know until you open that door. You know, there's plenty of NRHA guys, like you guys said, you know, Andre Pani and 
um, all Bob Avila and Craig Schmersel showed one. Tracer Gilson has. I mean, they've all they've kind of done that. And you know what? I opened that door. I just said, hey, would you mind trying one? We we really need people out here showing, and and it's been good for our breed to have those people out there doing it. So I mean, you, I can't really say the what the right answer is, but if you think you've got a working Western type horse, don't be afraid to call up one of those guys that you've seen and say, Hey, this is what I have. And they may say, Nope, I don't want to do that. Or I don't have time for it. Or let's call crystal or let's call so-and-so and see what the best bet is. So I, I think just, I wouldn't be afraid to call somebody. I I'm, I'm so thankful that you're doing all of this for the breed. And, and I know it's not you and there's quite a few people I'm sure that are helping to to get this out here, but it, it's so great that you were able to work with Andrea and Tracer and Bob and, and get them involved in the sport and, you know, yeah, just bring eyes to it for people who like myself, you know, I, I spend a lot of time in the NRHA arena. Um, but I, I hadn't been exposed to a lot of the, uh, half Arabian stuff or the Arabian stuff. And, um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's so cool to see what you're doing to help promote the breed and the, the reigning association. And, um, you know, it's, it's grown a ton within the last, what, like 15 years. It really has. I mean, it's, it's just kind of, it's just changed. You know, like I said, the breeding changed and they got more specific and, um, you know, probably the best thing I did was, uh, I had bought a horse from Andrea and he said, well, if you have a Arab, I'd love to show one. And he actually showed a purebred for us. And, um, it was my sister's horse and it, it worked out perfect. Uh, you know, he won. And, and even if he didn't, just what we got, just what the Arabians got by him being there and, sh and spotlighting, Hey, look, what's look what these horses are doing, you know? So, um, that's, that's a great thing. And, and like I said, you know, don't, most of these guys are willing to take a shot at it and see if they, if that works and it might not be that particular Arabian won't work, but another one will. And, and I think it's just willing, it's, time consuming. So if they have the time to do it, you know, that's, that's kind of the biggest thing. I mean, like I said, with me being right here, it's really nice because I can, um, juggle these horses around a little bit. So like Martin Mulestetter showed a horse for me last year and, um, I would just take it over there a couple times a week and then I'd take it home and ride it. So it, it was a good, very good relationship because, you know, we could kind of just work together on that, on that particular horse. Next, we had the chance to sit down with Cole Price. This is probably one of my favorite interviews because we had the opportunity to interview Cole days after he had won the Run for a Million, which is one of Reining's top competitions. I'll tell you what, what really fascinates me. Um, so I was saying I, I kind of learned, I actually probably got introduced to Reining through Clinton Anderson. Um, but And I'm very, very fortunate. Uh, I thank him a lot. I actually become close friends with them. Um, but you know, learning how to dissect a horse's body and teach it how to move this part where that was just fascinating to me that I could do that, you know, be able to side pass a horse, uh, push their hip up. And I think once I learned the body control aspect of it, and I remember the first time my horse accidentally turned or actually accidentally spun, I was like, that is the coolest freaking feeling in the world. And it was the same thing. I didn't get to stop a horse till later, but I was like, that is incredible. Like that was probably the ultimate high that I'd ever had. Just that feeling of complete power steering. But again, it all goes back to you're teaching this horse to do something with its mind. You're teaching to crave that maneuver. Um, I think the horseman in me, like once I learned how to take, 
the the ability to teach this horse to move its body wherever I wanted it, and then not only that, but teach it how to use its mind to do what I wanted. That part right there, and it still is fascinating to me. But that is what that is probably what pushed me more towards the reining. Um, and I do think a reining horse is the ultimate broke horse because. You know, like when I was at Mike Davis's, I had to give a lot of lessons just to people wanting to learn how to ride. An old retired reiner is the absolute easiest horse to give a lesson to because they steer, they get tight, they stop. Um, you know, and that's that's one thing I thought I've always, I don't know, I guess the more I got into it, the more I was addicted to it. But I would say when I first learned how to spin one and move its body around, the control aspect of it, that's when I knew that I wanted to be a horse trainer. I get that. Um, after about 15 years of doing the all around, I rode a cow horse and stopped and turned and worked a cow. And I was like, yeah, this is, it's this just is where addicting. I want to be. It, it's just addicting. I mean, it's really, totally. it's, it's kind of, I, I don't want to say intimidating because that's not the word, but you're just like, wow, this horse is doing this all by itself. And, you know, I feel like being in, it's like being in so much control that you're, almost not in control in your mind. You're not, you're not having to do it for them. That that's, that's the coolest feeling in the world. It, yeah. Really, I had ridden some like pretty nice all around horses and it just couldn't compare to the first time I rode a cow horse or, and now I have a rain or a, mm -hmm. a yearling coming to that. I haven't obviously ridden yet, but um, you know, it just, that feeling of like the power you have underneath yeah. of you, when you go like running into a stop and you just, oh, yeah. I mean, you just move your body the littlest amount and they're right there with you. And it's just, yeah. Oh man. And what's really cool is, um, and especially the, the quality of horses I'm getting now, but these horses want to do it so bad. So like, uh, one of my good four-year-olds, his name's Trendsetter, who I've been showing all year. And I've never been around an animal that loves to ride. Like, so after the Derby, the NRHA Derby, I just kind of turned him out every day. I was like, you need a good break. Like, I mean, he's so, he's robotic. And I was like, I just want to give you a, you know, a mental break, turn you out. And that horse, after about two days, would just look at me. I turned him out around the and just look at me like, are you going to ride me or not? Like, and that horse, like, he seriously is the happiest being ridden. And it's not even like having to do the maneuvers, but he loves it when, you know, if I got some friends or something, I'm like, go get on Trendsetter and lope him around. He absolutely freaking loves it. And that is really cool to see that these horses, uh, they want to do their jobs and they love it. You know, I think that's, that is really cool now. I feel like that probably makes your job so much more rewarding when, you know, it's, you both love it and you can tell that they love it. And is that, you know, when you're looking for a horse that to start in the raining, is that something that that's, you look for? Or what, what all do you look for to find a good that, one? That would probably be of the factors that is the absolute most important factor because if they don't want to do it, you got to remember they're a 1100 pound animal. There's no way you can make them do it. And even if you make them do it once, they're going to get you somewhere, you know, they're going to kick out or say no. Um, so a lot of times those horses don't work that long. You know, I don't think they have longevity and I understand some horses are tough and you get, you know, it takes a while to get them. And once they get them, they usually get it. But you know, those ones that just want to, they want to be your buddy. Uh, and usually it's not even so much just doing raining maneuvers. They're the same ones that they pick up teaching how to lunge right away. You know, whatever you want. They're just nice horses. 
you know, that's kind of every horse that I've had that's been good. They want to be your best friend, whether it's just walking around in the barn. They're just nice horses. Um, and that's one reason, too, like I'm a big believer in gelding uh, a lot of these horses because I want to turn these into nice horses that, you know, my niece is going to ride or, you know, eventually it's going to it's going to be a non-pro. It, the, to me, most of these high end horses, open horses, they're going to get sold to non-pro horses. Uh, and usually it's, you know, older women or younger kids or. You know, uh, and then it's going to get sold down to a rookie horse. Eventually, it's going to be a youth horse. So for me, training a horse, you know, I try to put a lot of thought into my program as far as solid horses. But keep in mind, if they're not nice to be around, it's going to make hauling that horse a pain in the butt. So that's one thing, like, for me, like, I try to pick up on right away. I'm very big on making nice, good show horses that love their job. And when they're broke. I can turn them out. I don't got to ride the tar on them every day. So that's very important. But that really goes to the mind. And I don't think you can make, like, in today's event, as um, specific as it is, and there's so many good horses, if these horses don't want to do it, you're, you're really wasting your time. You can still teach them, but they're never going to take a hold and say, you know, like, one thing, like, you really think about the winner of, the, of every event. They're always saying, pick me, pick me. You know, there's just something about those horses. And if they don't have that, uh, and just because they don't have it early on doesn't mean they won't have it later. But if they don't want to be with you, it usually doesn't work. Usually they don't have the heart for it. But exactly. I mean, you bring up you bring up a huge point. The the skill set that these horses are are doing, if they didn't want to do it, there's no way you could force a horse to be able to do that kind of stuff and, and to be able to do it time and time and time again. So it's no. And, and it's, one thing like you've got to think about. So we've been trying to breed reigning horses for really getting specifically breeding reigning horses for probably the last 40 years. So really majority of these horses that are hitting the ground as babies, they'll be all stop and turn. I mean, that's just a given how good. You know, are they all plus one turners? No. Uh, but what's going to separate those ones is what's upstairs. And if that mind wants to do it, that's what can take a horse from a half maneuver off their talent and push it into a one because they want to and they crave it. Um, so one of the probably the very first horse, actually, the, the very first horse I truly, really felt that on um, was a mare named Chexworthy. And she was the very first horse I ever made the level four finals on. So going into the three-year-old year, she was probably my number eight horse. If you, if I was going to rank them, she was probably my number eighth horse that, you know, I never thought she was going to turn into what she did. But her mind was incredible. Her mind was more than her talent. Uh, and she was talented. But um, going into her, your the three-year-old year, I thought she would was just going to be a non-pro horse. But she was consistent. Every day she came out and said, what do you want me to do? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. She, I mean, literally it was your best friend, a heart of gold. And uh, that mare showed that way. She was like, if you want me to do this, I will do it. And I will do it more. Uh, and that was probably the first time I ever felt a horse's mind overweigh their talent. And I think that mare today has won $80,000. Uh, I, I won 40000 on her. And then... Um, she went to a lower level trainer, but that mare, that was the first time I ever felt a horse just go, I'm here for you. Pick me. And she, I mean, turned into my number one horse. So it was just incredible the way that horse's mind was. She was just, she wanted you 
she wanted to do whatever you wanted. And if you ask for a hundred percent, she's going to give you more. Just that was pretty special. I yeah. also liked your, um, your comment about having geldings and doing that just because yeah. I like, I, you know, I've been around so many people that have always been like, man, I, I want to have a stallion. I want to have a stud. And I'm just looking, I'm like, why? <laughs> yeah. You know, I think they got to be pretty special to be a stud. Um, and most of the good studs, uh, they act like geldings anyways. Um, you know, and yeah, keep in mind, I do think that, you know, even testosterone carries down in generations. So if they're an orangutan, the baby's going to be orangutans too. And, you know, and, and that's something that, you know, if you, us as professionals, we're still trying to mold, we're trying to make the reigning horse better and better. So, uh, you know, and that's all mental stuff. So, you know, if that's one thing we're going to influence, you know, if they can't handle being a stud, well, they probably don't need to be a stud. And usually it catches up to them. You know, there's so many different ways of a horse being study. Uh, that doesn't mean they're vocal. Um, they could be pushy in their belly, that's, which is where I feel it a lot. You know, they always got that pushback. Um, you know, they can get that some studs get a little too timid. Um, you know, and I always think sometimes you don't know until you haul them to a horse show. Well, if they don't haul good, you know, like Vegas, that was a that was a 19 hour haul. Well, if they're more worried about fighting the horse next to them. They're going to be wore out. Same thing when you stick them in a, some of these places, you know, we go to, they're, they're, uh, they're not solid dividers in between the stalls. And if you're stalled next to another stud and they're sitting there fighting, there's no way they're focused on doing their job. And there's no way you're going to get the most out of them. So as an investment standpoint, you know, that is something that you do have full control of if you castrate them. But, you know, as a trainer, it, it's something that you, you can't really control if they're sitting there fighting or playing around their stall all night and now when you get them out their mind somewhere else or they're so tired that they can't do the job or they're focused you know there's so many outcomes that that people don't realize that going to play with testosterone um you know it's the same thing with mares you know one thing that's important with a mare is trying to control their heat cycle you know you don't want to go to the horror show and and you know they come into heat and now you know, stuff happens that never happened before, you know? So that is one thing that goes into, um, that goes into the, the factor of a training program. But I do know one thing that we can control is if you geld a horse, you don't have to worry about any of that stuff, you know? And it just makes it, to me, it makes those horses a lot happier too. I mean, I've never, I've never seen a gelding that, you know, after the whole procedure, a couple months after you geld it, they weren't happier. I mean, it, so I don't know. I'm a, I'm a big believer in making nice, solid show horses that are going to last a long time. And, and you know, I, I, I do think there's a couple of horses that in my barn that I think are exceptional as stallions. And there's a good chance they're going to have a breeding career. But that doesn't mean every stud that walks in the barn needs to be a stud. This next clip is from our interview with Matt Mills. When we had the chance to talk with Matt, we learned a little bit more about his history and how he eventually got involved in the reigning horse industry. You know, that's a funny story. It, uh, it began in Long Beach, California. So I'm, I'm you know, I'm from straight from the city and, um, from, you know, I, I didn't really come from a horse family. My, my mom had horses as a kid and, uh, and then, you know, as she got older and got into working, she couldn't have them anymore. And so, she, so she didn't have any for a long time. And she got me some pony rides when I was probably like eight years old or so. That's how I started. And apparently, 
I lit up when I got on a pony and then it turned into riding lessons. So I'd go, this, I'm, you know, I'm about nine years old. This is in the middle of the city. There's one stable. It was called the Lakewood Equestrian Center. It's still there, believe it or not. And I would go there, and it seemed like once a week, and I would ride this pony named Dizzy. I, I still remember that was the very first one I had a lesson on. I think this pony was probably like 30 years old, something like that. And anyway, I started off with just basic riding with uh, a woman named Michelle Bloomquist there in Southern California. And I, and I did that for about 10 years just taking riding lessons and then you know and then I, I i did eventually get a horse and i i did trail and western pleasure and equitation and um even you know mess around with a little bit of everything but uh but that's how i started i, I love playing basketball as a kid that that was probably I, I probably liked basketball more than horses even or about the same but um yeah i, I didn't grow up on a ranch you know I, I had to catch the the city bus it took about 45 minutes from my house to the stable and I, you know, I, I never had a problem. I, I love doing that. You know, I can feel you for that. Cause I'm also from the city. I'm from Chicago suburbs and yeah, it was an hour drive to the barn. You're in the middle of an urban area. There's no ranch. There's the, you know, the property that we were on was subdivisions all around us. And then there was just a little slab of a barn and an, an outdoor riding arena. So it, it's a lot different though, because the people that you're around don't understand the horses and what you're doing. Oh, for sure. But you know, when you're in the middle of it, you know, I was one of those people too that didn't know anything. So I'm learning. And, you know, now looking back on it, I go, you know, it's pretty, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty, pretty fortunate that I made it out without getting hurt. I did have a great instructor though. She, she did, she, she taught me so many good things, uh, foundation wise and let me do a lot of things because I was there all the time. But yeah, I mean, we're right on a riverbed there. And I remember taking my horses along that riverbed or taking, you know, riding along there and, um, you know, thinking about it now, like there's no way I would send a beginner rider like out on a riverbed, you know, and I'm talking like, you know, cement riverbed, like in the city, you know, bikers and stuff and joggers. And, uh, you know, the, the fact that I made it out of it, you know, I think that, that, you know, it's kind of pretty fortunate. Yeah. It's pretty funny. Some of the things that we do as kids and then look back on and we're like, why in the world were we doing that? I would never let anybody do that. So kind of switching and going forward in your life you know you said you love basketball and horses but when was it that you really decided that horses were the route that you wanted to take and kind of veer into the reigning path you know so I'd say pretty early on like around 12 or 13 I was I was really torn you know I kind of you know I had it in my mind I'm going to go to the NBA and you know I was a Lakers still am a Lakers fan of course um which uh, hopefully they win the title this year, by the way, a little side note. But uh, anyway, yeah, so I was torn. I, I, I wanted to play basketball, but I really loved horses. And I thought, man, I'm watching the, you know, my trainer and, and thinking, man, this is something that, that I could do. And then I've got my parents, of course, saying, no, you've got to go to college and you, you know, you've got to go do these other things. And along the way, getting into reining, you know, I'm going to a lot of these local events, you know, they're open shows in California. I think they were called WEA, like Western Horsemen, some W-H-E-A, but they were, they weren't even uh, breed events. Cause I, you know, we didn't have a horse that was good enough. And for most of my youth career, I had a breeding stock Appaloosa, but I'd go to these shows and I'd see the stock horse classes. That's what they called them back then. And those were the horses, you know, it's, you know, modern day rainers, they're running and sliding and spinning. 
And I just remember thinking first that they didn't have to wear the stupid little outfits that I had to wear. I always thought, you know, they're a little, little girly. <laughs> and so I looked at that and I thought, these look like cowboys and they get to go fast. So I was fascinated with that. I'd say probably like mid-teens or so. And so I started snooping around and investigating on my own. Uh, you know, now I'm getting to be like 16, 17, kind of getting a mind of my own. And, I, and I, I'm following the California horse trader. And I see reigning horse trainer Garth and Brenda Brown are moving from Oregon down to Southern California, to Costa Mesa. That's a, you know, there was no rainers at the time. So I'm thinking now here's my chance. So I blew his phone up for, I think he advertised like three or four months before he moved. And I called him probably at least once a week just to make sure that they were coming and that I could take lessons. So when he moved down, I was probably just short of 18. And I took my first reigning lesson down there with, with Garth. So I drove, you know, again, you know, nothing's close. Now I'm driving. Oh man, it was probably like 45 minutes and you know, LA traffic was probably like two hours though. Uh, I'm driving down to take a lesson on a reining horse. And so I had about, I only had about six months of riding reining horses before I moved to Arizona. Oh, wow. So you, I mean, you kind of knew immediately that that was what you wanted to do with your career then. Well, you know, so I, I was hooked on reining immediately. You know, I mean, I was like, man, this is really cool. The horses are so well-trained and you get to go fast and nobody was, you know, getting after me about my equitation, you know, I could kind of relax a little bit. So I was thinking this was pretty neat. And then it just so happened that, you know, I, I had gotten a horse to lease and, you know, I had some other friends and stuff doing it. And, and the thing to do was to, was to do an internship in Arizona. It was the hot spot then there's Todd Bergen, John Slack, maybe, you know, rest in peace, Brett Stone, Dale Hendricks, you name it. Everybody was here in Arizona. And anyway, I, time timing worked out where a friend of mine, you know, got me an, an internship with Dell Hendricks. I didn't even know who he was. I, I wanted to go to Todd Berg and John Slack. I knew who those guys were. I didn't know who this Dell guy was. So I met him at a show out there. <laughs> Literally one day, a friend goes, hey, you should go to this guy's place. Now I think back on this, it's crazy that my parents let me do this. And so I meet Dell, and this is 97. And so I said, hey, you know, uh, you know, can I come to your ranch for the summer? And he's like, sure, but you're going to live with me and I'm not going to pay you anything and you're going to work hard. And I said, yeah, it sounds great. So I headed out in June, the day after I graduated, you know, and it was a hundred and whatever, 120 degrees out here. And as soon as I stepped out of the car, you know, at, at Rancho Cerrillo is the time Dell worked for him. I, I kind of, that heat hit me and I was like, oh man. What am I doing? And then I walked in the barn and looked at all the horses and looked at the facility. And I thought, well, this is going to be great. So I went from like, you know, I had 10, like I said, I, I, I rode as a kid, you know, about 10 years of experience with all around stuff, six months of actual reining, um, you know, and I competed a lot, so I wasn't worried about that, but just six months of actual riding reining horses. And I jump into an internship with uh, a summer internship with Dell Hendricks. And so I got a funny story about that. So I never really drove in a stick shift very much as a kid. I grew up in the city. You know, I wasn't driving farm equipment or anything like that. I wasn't into hot rods. I was into riding the city bus. So Dell, he, he says, hey, do you know how to, can you drive a truck and trailers? Yeah, I can drive a truck and trailer. I've you know, driven my parents' 
truck with a two horse bumper pull. And so anyway, I'm like, yeah. So he's like, all right, you're going to get in the truck tomorrow. He would, you know, he didn't really give you a lot of details, but he never did. And I worked for him almost five years. It was kind of, Hey, you're going to get in a truck tomorrow. I'm like, you know, I'm 18 and I'm used to doing what my dad told me. So I'm like, okay. So we jump in the truck to go to the Oklahoma city to the NRHA Derby. And we get, I don't know, we're in the middle of New Mexico somewhere. It's pitch black and he's tired. He pulls over. Okay. Like, hey, it's time for you to drive. Well, he never told me that it was a stick shift. You know, we're, we're driving a six horse dually and I've never driven one before. So, and I was looking the whole time. I was just sweating. I was going, man, I hope he doesn't ask me to drive. And so sure enough, he does. And I had to, you know, I had to let him know, like, uh, I don't know how to drive a stick shift. And so anyway, uh, that went over the way it went over. He drove the whole way. Luckily he ended up tying to win the Derby that year. So I go from, Again, you know, graduating high school to I jump in the deep end of the reigning world with a guy I don't know, and he goes out and wins the first major event that I go to. So that's that's how I started off. Wow, like what a starry-eyed kid you must have been to just kind of dive headfirst into it like that. But obviously he was a mentor of yours and kind of helped shape you as a rider. Who else would you credit your riding career to? Well, you know, I mean, as far as like the reigning go, I mean, of course, you know, I have to thank my, my childhood trainer, um, you know, Michelle Bloomquist and then Dale working for him almost five years that, um, you know, he, he taught me a ton, really good horsemen, uh, along the way, you know, you, you pick up so much from everybody that you're around. I've asked questions to, you know, from a ton of people and you pick up some things that you don't want to do and, you know, you pick up a lot of others that, that you use and kind of formulate into your own method of, of, of training, you know, training your horses. You know, my, my wife, Karen, she, uh, she's a big part of my program. You know, she's my you know, biggest fan and, and uh, you know, probably most real critic. You know, if I'm kind of thinking something's feeling good, she definitely tells me, you know, when it's not or vice versa. But I couldn't really put my finger on, I mean, there's been so many people, you know, I mean, um, the, you know, the, the great trainers ahead of us, you know, I try to really study, you know, a lot what those guys did and, you know, how they got to where they got to. And, and then even looking at, you know, today, just studying, um, where everybody's at and it all comes back to the horse. So that's the, that's the, that's the great equalizer. And that's the one thing that I would say has probably been my biggest teacher teachers are the horses that I've trained. I love that because you don't know how many people we talk to. And it really makes my heart happy that that's the reason they're in it is the horses. They truly love the horses. So I'm so happy to hear that from you. But do you have a kind of going off of that? Do you have a horse that is the most memorable to you? That's a, that's a good question, which when I get asked that, I'm like, it's like, it's like asking me which one's my favorite kid, you know? Uh, <laughs> That's kind of the way I look at training my horses. You know, I try to treat them as if they were my children, you know, I try to be fair and, you know, if they need whatever they need, they need a, you know, a, a hand or, you know, they need an arm around them, like a hug, or they need, you know, they need you to be a little more stern with them, but always fair and always thinking, okay, you know, I love this kid, just like, you know, I love this horse. But I mean, it'd be easy for me to point out um, early on, there was a mare named Dunnett's Delight when I worked for Dell Hendricks that, I got kind of late, uh, another trainer, uh, Patrice Saint-Onge and his wife, Veronica, they asked me to ride this mare when I worked for Dell. It was kind of a late deal. And 
uh, ended up being second in the le limited open futurity that year. Maybe it was intermediate open. It was like 2000. And that kind of was like, because I knew, you know, they told me this mayor is not enough to, you know, be on the top end. But if you do your job, she should be competitive. And after that, when I got second that year, I was like, man, maybe I can get this figured out. Um, never was worried about competition, you know, about the, you know, getting nervous or anything like that. But it's such a balance between having the horses ready and being competitive. That'd be the first one. And then the, and then the other one would be Easy Odie Wiz, which that horse kind of jumped in my lap early in my career. And, uh, you know, I won a, won a lot of stuff, won a gold medal for the, uh, at the World Equestrian Games for Team USA. That was a huge deal. I had my all-time high score, 231 and a half on that horse. And and he was he was one that was just so good natured, just really kind of showed me what the power of a a uh, a good natured or good minded willing horse, what what it can do. Because I've been on a lot of horses over my career that were more physically gifted, more spark and pizzazz, but that horse just had a yes attitude all the time. And and he led me eventually into the horse that I won the most money on, which is Wimp School Breeze, owned by uh, Mark and Janice Dixon. And that's one that I've had more recent. That buckskin Wimpy's little step, just really pretty horse. And and that's another one that he was cut from kind of the same cloth, where you know he just would go out every time and try so hard. And I still have him in the barn to this day, and I, I still love jumping on and riding him. They're the kind of horses that like you kind of get in a rut maybe or. You know, you're kind of feeling like, man, things just aren't going the way I want. Because anybody who tells you that doesn't happen, they're lying to you. It happens to everybody. So I kind of call them like my slump busters, those kind of horses. Then you jump on, and it almost seems like no matter what you do, it goes right. And then you can kind of carry that momentum on to your other horses and try to get them to kind of feel and respond the way those, those great ones have. I mean, and I, I've had other horses, but those would be the ones that would uh, that would stand out in my mind. This last podcast clip comes from our interview with Lindy Birch, a legendary cutting horse trainer, and we had the chance to talk to her about great show mares and what it's like to ride some of them. I mean, one is the most obvious one, but then there's so I, I've had the privilege and been very very fortunate to to have a lot of really great horses and. They make great trainers. I'll be the first to admit that. And they make successful trainers. But my best mare, of course, is Betcher Bluebeams that, you know, I won the world on in 2000. And she's she was phenomenal because she wasn't, and for a lot of really good reasons. I mean, she was the most amazing athletic horse I've ever been on. But she wasn't very easy to train. And she didn't really decide to cut till she was five. And then... Like from five on, it was just like she took me to class every day. She was training me to be a better showman and be smarter about picking cows. And she showed me all that. But from her two-year-old year till her five-year-old year, she would show areas of brilliance on a cow. And she could do things so easy. So, you know, her stop was amazing. Her turns were amazing. She stayed low to the ground. But she just really could care less about holding the cow. She would hold it about a minute better than any horse you've ever seen. And then she'd just quit. And she'd just say, no, nah, not today. That's all I want to do today. And I just stayed with her. And all of a sudden, she, she had a little injury 
the end of her four-year-old year. And I, I'd marked some good scores on her, but nothing, she wouldn't be consistent at all. Couldn't trust her. I, she broke my heart many, many, many times. And uh, where I thought I had her, but I didn't. And then everybody told me to give up on her, but I wouldn't because I'm pretty stubborn, as you probably read. But she had a minor injury where she had to have a, she broke a sesamoid in her hind foot. And it was just a little bitty piece she chipped off. So that we, we decided to take it out. So she had two months off, maybe three. But when I brought her back, she never looked back. Never, ever had a bad run on that mare after that. Never had a bad work. And so she was amazing in that way. And, and then, obviously, when I retired her at 12, she lived, you know, another 16 years where she was just my buddy in the barn. And first horse I'd turn out in the pastures every day. And she'd winnie when she heard me or see me. And she had, you know, a, a bunch of, bunch of great horses. And one of the mares she had was a mare I was reserved at the paternity on. Luckily, she was a little easier to train than her mother. In 2015, a mare called Bet She's Smooth. And then she was a great, great mare. I loved her. I won a lot of money on her. And I'm riding her first son, a horse called Raisin Betts, that is four now that I really, really like. I think he's, I think he's special. I haven't really had the runs on him yet to prove it to a lot of other people, but I feel that he's very special. And then the other mare I have to mention is a mare called She's a Smarty Lena that, that, you know, when trainers talk about training horses, especially as many as I've trained over the years, usually you have good days, great days, not so good days, and bad days. Cher, I called her Cher. Was, I had bar names for all the horses. Her nickname was Cher because she was a superstar. And she's, she was born in 1989. That's how old she is, or she was. And I was fourth at the futurity on her. But what makes her unique is I never, ever had a bad day on that mare. The whole time, the whole two years I trained her to the futurity and then did real well to futurity. And then for years after that, and I won over a quarter of a million on her. But she, I never, ever had a bad day. And I can't say that about any other horse I've ever trained. You know, and, and not that it was a terrible day, but it just, well, just like people. I just feel like doing it today. I'm not as good. I didn't jump catch up ball like I should have. You know, just just not not your best day. Or questioning on a, on a new technique. Sharon never did any of that. Every day she was just, she'd meet you almost with a smile and a whinny. And that's, what are we going to do today? You know. I have to say, through all those stories, uh, one thing I really took away is how many iconic mares you've had. And I'm I'm such a big believer in mares, and I love them. I think they're such great show horses, and they'll give you their whole heart. And it sounds like you've had some really, really special ones. I've had brilliant mares, and, and I'm you're preaching to the choir, because I think the mares, mare power is the key to, to everything. The key to making a stallion, the key to... to having a stallion or developing a stallion, I always look at the bottom side. And of all the studs that I breed to and the studs that I've raised, they've had great bottom sides. Like, bet he's a cat, like Metallic Cat. I owned his mother. Metallic Cat, bet he's a cat, bet on me. And uh, I thought this four-year-old was going to be a stud, too. But, but, you know, I had to make the choice either to 
keep training him as a stallion or just have a really good show horse. And at this stage of my life, I decided the latter. I decided I wanted a really good show horse. I didn't really want to get into trying to stand him and promote him and prove him the next 10 years. I want to just go show him and have fun. But I have, but all the stallions I've had are directly, I mean, the, the great mares are directly responsible for those stallions. And, and I think mares offer a minimum of 60%, and I think a lot closer to 70 or 75% of the genetic material that shows up in, in their progeny. Once again, we'd like to thank ADM Forage First Patriot Feeds for sponsoring this episode of The Ride. Thank you guys for tuning into The Ride Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode, and please be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow Horse and Rider Magazine on social media, and find us at horseandrider.com to see all the cool things that we're up to. And if you have any comments or questions, please be sure to hit us up at horseandrider at equinenetwork.com. We want to hear from you guys. And if you like what you're listening to, please be sure to leave us a review on iTunes.